And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to Episode 7 of Manufacturing Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman, and I'm your host for this new series on Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm bringing my career in economics and my 15 years of experience in manufacturing research to this program to create deep and wide understanding of America's crucial factory sector. We have been and will continue to look at the major headlines of the day. They matter to manufacturing performance. But as I have said before, we'll also be looking beyond the headlines to understand the rapid and complex dynamics that are changing what manufacturing is and what it looks like. The key word here is new. New markets, new science, new technology, new economic thinking. We'll help you to understand how each of these is contributing to a new manufacturing story. In our earlier episodes, we had such luminaries as Chad Motre, Michael Mandel, Rob Atkinson, Tom Dusterberg, Keith Belton. They helped us to understand the broad macro forces of global and technological change that are reshaping America's factory sector. Today, we'll begin bringing this analysis down to the sector level, the market level, the regional level. Since we are taping this episode a day before Valentine's Day, we have a very appropriate topic chemistry. We will look at the basic chemical subsector. On a daily basis, we are all very much affected by the output of these crucial industries. My guest today is one of the most knowledgeable, if not the most knowledgeable economist on this crucial subsector, Kevin Swift. Dr. Swift is the chief economist at the American Chemistry Council in Washington, where he is responsible for economic analyses dealing with markets, energy, trade, tax, and innovation, as well as monitoring business conditions, identifying emerging trends, and assessing the economic and societal contributions of chemistry. Prior to joining the American Chemistry Council, Dr. Swift held senior level and executive positions at two major industrial market research consultancies. He is a member of the National Association for Business Economics, NAEP, the Harvard Discussion Group of Industrial Economists, and the National Business Economics Issues Councils, as well as the Charlotte Economics Club and the Association of Industry Analysts. He is a member of the prestigious Wall Street Journal Forecasters Survey Panel, NAEB's panel of forecasters, and a participant in the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank's forecaster survey. After serving on the board of directors of NAEB, he chaired the NAEB Education Committee, and for his service as a professional economist and his contributions to the profession, he was elected a NAEB Fellow. Dr. Swift was also one of the first to achieve NAEB's Certified Business Economist designation. Importantly for me and my uh, deepening involvement with NAVE, Dr. Swift has begun serving as president of NAVE for the 2018-2019 term. 
He's a graduate of Ashland College with a BA degree and a graduate of Case Western Reserve University with an MA degree in economics. He is also a graduate of Anglia Polytechnic University with a doctorate in business administration degree, and he has completed studies at Harvard University and the University of Oxford. Dr. Swift is an adjunct professor of business economics at the University of Mary, Washington, and he's also a member of the Heritage Council of the Science History Institute. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thank you, Cliff. You know, uh, in, in assessing sectors, the, the, te- the first question is to always sort of compare them to what manufacturing as a whole has been doing. As you well know, overall, the U.S. manufacturing sector has struggled to recover from the Great Recession. Manufacturing growth picked up, you know, modestly in 2017 and 2018, but remarkably, output still remains slightly below the pre-recession December 2007 peak. Let me ask you, what is the growth and recovery situation in the chemical subsector? Well, Cliff, I'm going to divide chemicals into two segments, um, one being basic chemicals, which is essentially inorganic chemicals, organic chemicals, petrochemicals, resins, rubber, and fiber. It's roughly a $325 billion segment. And then there's specialty chemicals, which is the performance-oriented, uh, high-value-added end of the business. Um, it's roughly a $100 billion-plus segment. Think of the latter as um, providing a solution in the former um, tends to provide a molecule. Well, um, looking at the actual tonnage uh, in the fourth quarter of 2018, basics were roughly about 92% of the you know, fourth quarter 2007 peak. Um, that's based on raw tonnage. There was a very quick V-shaped recovery, and then we reached a plateau. Um, largely because of capacity constraints, um, which is changing. For specialties, the, um, it's been a much more favorable uh, picture. If you look at, and we have monthly data on that, if you look at December 2007 as being 100, we're now at 127% of the um, that previous peak of activity. Uh, much more dynamic, steady growth there. Uh, largely reflecting the inroads that performance chemistry makes in other manufacturing sectors. Well, let me ask you, um, once you dive into um, this subsector, you realize that it, it's, it, you know, there are different stories for different uh, these different industries, organic, inorganic. But again, I'll, I'll ask you for just a general judgment call. As a whole, do you see the chemical subsector as being a growth catalyst for U.S. manufacturing in the years to come? Well, we we do. Um, Chemistry uh, really touches everything in life. Um, You know, there's a lot of societal benefits from from chemistry. Um, We've done some long-term growth accounting, um, you know, look at the economy. We found that Chemistry innovation adds about uh, 0.2% per year to overall long-term GDP growth. The outlook is fairly good for the chemical industry. And uh, 
largely because of the revolution in shale gas. Um, mm. If you look at, um, we largely, uh, in this country, we our raw material base is largely linked to um, the price of natural gas. And the revolution in shale gas has um, essentially lowered the costs of uh, our raw material base. If you were to look at, say, 2005 as a base year, U.S. ethane prices are off by more than one-half from there, largely because of that uh, revolution in shale gas. Most of the rest of the world, uh, we crack ethane. Well, in the United States, we crack ethane uh, to manufacture ethylene and other uh, in the petrochemicals, um, derivatives that are derived from that. In Europe, Northeast Asia, and much of the rest of the world, they crack naphtha, which is a heavier liquid, um, highly correlated with the price of Brent. If you were to look at, say, 2005 and compare the latest prices to that, Brent oil prices and naphtha prices are up from where they were in 2005. So we've enjoyed a comparative advantage. And we've been tracking uh, uh, the announcement of new projects. And we've had, uh, as our last count, 333 projects that have been announced that are tied to energy competitiveness, shale gas, so on and so forth, with a value of over $202 billion. Now, some of the low-hanging fruit, some of those early projects have been completed, but we're seeing a surge in capacity coming on stream last year, this year, and next year. And so looking at basic chemicals, um, the growth rates um, largely, uh, you know, this year and next year uh, overall will be, you know, 5.5%, 6.25% next year. That's largely focused in bulk petrochemicals and organics and in resins, where the growth rates are um, in excess of um, 7 and 8% per year as this capacity comes on stream. Much of it will be exported. Um, you know, we figure on average uh, about 55% of the mm-hmm. output from these uh, projects will be exported, some of them as much as 100%. The specialty chemical segment, uh, very strong growth the last two years. Uh, last year was 4.4%. We're expecting 3.5% this year, and that moderating the year after that as uh, overall industrial production moderates. Well, it, it's certainly an interesting subsector to, and, and a very natural subsector to talk about innovation. Um, you, you, you know, so the shale gas revolution is certainly um, an area. Um, let, let me ask you two questions: Are, Is there any index that all of us can follow to track innovation as a whole in the chemical subsector? Well, there are some um, data sources uh, that um, the Bureau of Economic Analysis collects on um, investment in R&D and uh, other intellectual property. You can segment out the pharmaceutical data from that, uh, fortunately. So, yes, and then also we also track uh, what uh, member companies or chemical companies are spending. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on innovation, product, product innovation activity, in the, the chemicals areas that we touch every day in our lives, cleaning fluid, uh, things that are in our home, in our offices, are, is there much going on in innovation in those particular areas? Well, uh, a lot of it's consumer-driven. Um, 
and you know consumers are always looking for uh, more environmentally sustainable uh, products, uh, particularly with you know consumer you know products where you know chemistry touches. There's innovations in that area. Innovations in materials. Um, you know, think of carbon fibers and uh, new resins and new um, you know tweaking of the resins that can be literally targeted for an individual application at this particular point. Um, chemistry. You know, a lot of those innovations. Uh, we're, we're a solutions provider. And, you know, for example, um, we are a large um, energy-using industry, but for every unit of energy that we use for fuel and power, um, we save two units of energy elsewhere in the economy. You know, think of it in terms of uh, we provide the raw materials that are used to manufacture, say, insulation or uh, the materials that are used to lightweight cars, um, so on and so forth. Okay. Let's let's push the innovation discussion from product innovation to process innovation. Of of course, goes without saying that new process technologies are a key story for modern manufacturing. Where in the chemical subsector in chemicals manufacturing are process innovations, process innovations currently the most the most penetrating and the most disruptive? Well, the, the industry has a long history of process innovations and also um, product innovations as well. But um, in the area of processes, there's been a lot of interest in uh, bio-based processes, you know, ones that are more you know, environmentally sustained or products that are made from uh, you know, biomass uh, raw materials. Uh, there's also been uh, a lot of interest in... Uh, you know, on-purpose propylene um, manufacturing. Um, traditionally, sources of propylene in this country come from a refinery or from a, a steam cracker, um, but the wave of new steam crackers that are part of this revolution in uh, petrochemicals from the shale gas, uh, they tend to be on-purpose um, steam crackers to manufacture um, ethylene. They yield very little in terms of um, propylene as a byproduct, unlike you know with naphtha-based processes. So, been a lot of interest and um, investment activity in this country. We need the propylene to manufacture polypropylene, a, a key resin that's used in consumer and institutional and other applications. Uh, but you know, a lot of interest um, in uh, manufacturing. Uh, you know, on purpose, you know, propylene uh, plants. Now, one of the wonderful things about doing this show is that while I help our readers our, and listeners to learn, um, to learn, I learn a lot myself. And in preparing this interview, I very naturally wanted to ask Dr. Swift about pharmaceuticals, such a you know an industry that is is gaining in importance as the population ages and as many other things going on. But Kevin instructed me that while pharmaceuticals used to be a part of the chemical subsector, it has that sector has that industry has grown so much that it's earned it it's its own subsector. Nevertheless, I I just given your expertise, Kevin, I just wanted you to get um some general thoughts about pharmaceuticals because it affects so many of our listeners. Global populations are aging Medical advances accelerate are accelerating most notably lately in the cancer area. 
I'd have to imagine as the, as a result of all this, the long term prospect for pharmaceuticals for pharmaceuticals has to be pretty bright. Is is that generally correct? Yes, that's generally correct. Um, an aging population, not only here in the United States and, and Canada, but also in Europe and believe it or not, most of the rest of the world as well. That's going to be an issue that uh, we as economists and uh, those in pol- making policy will have to uh, grapple with. Um, as we age, um, most spending for health care occurs um, in the later you know, years of life. And so the long-term prospects for pharmaceuticals demand is actually quite strong. It's, it's related to that you know, the underlying demography. And as nations become more wealthier, they can afford uh, uh, more health care as well. That said, um, you know, the demand is there, but where the pharmaceuticals are going to be manufactured um, has changed over the years. Um, we, one of the reasons why um, we stopped including pharmaceuticals in the way that we look at chemical manufacturing is that um, we import an awful lot of the pharmaceuticals that are used in this country, uh, largely from Ireland, um, Italy, a few other nations as well. Um, you know, Ireland in particular made a push to um, develop um, an indigenous uh, or domestic um, pharmaceutical manufacturing industry. And so some of the where the supply comes from has changed. There's also um, somewhat different dynamics for pharmaceuticals versus the rest of chemistry. So that's why we've sort of segregated the two. Uh, in Europe, they've already made the break uh, between the two um, sectors. It's just still included within H325. And pharmaceuticals has grown as a um, share of the uh, chemical manufacturing, the NAICS 325, whereas in, say, 1970, it was roughly you know, 14, 15 percent of the value added. Right now, it's on the order of about 35 to 42 percent of the value added of, you know, the NAICS 325 overall chemical manufacturing. So a little bit different dynamics. Well, I mean, with the, the, thank you for your, your insights in this. With this critical sector, we, given all the issues surrounding where pharmaceuticals are being produced, intellectual property, regulations, and antitrust, I, I will let our, our listeners know that we will be returning to, to discussions on pharmaceuticals. Kevin, uh, I, I've been privy to a lot of discussions at NAVE and other forums about entrepreneurship. Um, generally speaking, it has fallen off um, after the late 1990s, and there's been, you know, in discussions about entrepreneurship in manufacturing. It's particularly since um, more manufacturing jobs are being created in the downstream part of supply chains, in the smaller tier two and um, tier three suppliers. So I, I want to put that question to the chemical subsector. Um, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the type of products that these are are make them privy to being produced by large producers. And if I'm wrong, please let me know. But my general question is, is market concentration in chemicals manufacturing prohi- prohibitive of healthy, market-disrupting entrepreneurship that would keep, um, you know, keep the, industri- the industry subsector moving forward? 
Well, that's an interesting question. Um, in many cases, um, concentration has, you know, heightened in, in certain sectors. Uh, if one went back 20, 30 years, there were a lot of very broad line chemical companies that were pretty much in everything. That's changed over the years through divestitures and spinoffs uh, and the such, and companies have tended to concentrate in uh, specific chemistries, um, ethylene chemistry or propylene or methanol-based, methane-based chemistry. So there has been a, a trend towards higher concentration when one gets to fairly narrower levels. That said, there's, you know, with these spinoffs, some of these are very entrepreneurial. Um, these divestitures are very entrepreneurial uh, in focus. And I would say in a lot of the specialty chemical segments, there has been, you know, new companies that have emerged um, in s certainly new product areas. Uh, as I mentioned before, a lot of interest in bio-based products, uh, a lot of uh, New companies are coming out of uh, academic research that have developed unique processes or unique products in that area. Hmm. Let's get down to a discussion of the workforce in the chemical subsector. I, I, I'm going to ask you to give me a human capital picture of the chemicals manufacturing workforce. Pri First of all, is this I'm sure it varies within industries, but is this primarily an educated labor force in chemicals? Yes, it is. Um, we uh, Typically, the, the industry play, pays wages and salaries well in excess of the average for manufacturing. Uh, it depends on the locale. Um, the industry employs a lot of chemical engineers, a lot of other engineers, a lot of uh, chemists and other scientists uh, that are involved in R&D, and uh, even plant operators, uh, the, you know, the people who work in the control rooms. Uh, generally, uh, they have a, um, an associate's degree. Uh, the industry can kind of used to be able to kind of pick and choose who it could hire. Uh, that said, we're like a lot of manufacturing industries, and I imagine my good friend um, Chad Moutre talked about this when you um, interviewed him, um, workforce development is a key issue. We, um, I often ask the question when I talk with uh, CEOs of our member companies, um, what keeps you up at night? And I can say that within, uh, they may give me two or three things, but one of those is going to be workforce development, and it's a, it's an issue. We uh, it, there's been some data on the, the average age of a chemical industry worker; it's on excess of you know 50 years. So we have a whole almost a generation that's ready to retire, getting close to it. We need to replace that. We have the strong growth in the Gulf Coast with a lot of those projects. Um, so this has become a very important issue. Well, it brings up the, the obvious question, which is probably the easily the most talked about issue in, in, in manufacturing research. Does the U.S. have the workforce that we need for a healthy chemical subsector? Do we have in our labor force coming out of our universities – what we need for the future of chemicals? Um, well, yes, we, in a short answer, yes, we do. Um, 
chemical engineering as a discipline was invented in the United States. We have a very strong, some of the best universities in the, in the country um, are in the United States, um, some of the best schools. Um, and, uh, you know, we do have a, um, uh, I just wish more people would go uh, become majors in chemical engineering. It's it's a fantastic, you know, degree. Uh, you don't have to work for a chemical company. You could work for other manufacturing sectors, uh, equipment manufacturers, so on and so forth. There's a lot of opportunities. And, I mean, if you were to look at the um, profile of the typical chemical industry CEO, they have a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering have gone up through the ranks. Um, so um, it's, it's a good entre- you know, degree to get into the industry. Um, you can be involved in all aspects of chemical marketing, uh, production, logistics, R&D, so on and so forth, plant design, uh, a lot of opportunities. And then there's a lot of opportunities for uh, – chemical plant uh, operators, you know, that maybe go through a, a chemical technician uh, program at a local community college. Okay, very good. Um, we've had a lot of changes in the past decade, or even less than a decade, in the energy uh, economy of the United States, more than we would have imagined eight or ten years ago. I mean, the United States is an energy producer now. Um, so we are continue to talk about energy, and a large part of that, or at least a, a, a good-sized part of that discussion is, is the move to renewable energies. That, that comes up in the public policy dialogue in Washington and the states occasionally. So I'm going to ask you, hypothetically, what a sizable shift, let's pretend that we have a sizable shift toward renewable energy. Would that be a relative positive, a relative negative, or some combination of both for the future profitability of chemicals manufacturing? Well, that's a $64 billion question. Um, But let me phrase it first that uh, we are a significant supplier to um, the oil and gas industry. Uh, And over the last, you know, certainly this decade, it's emerged as a very large specialty chemical segment, uh, oil field chemicals. Uh, We make possible... Um, tertiary and uh, other you know, new ways of extracting oil and gas. Uh, as I mentioned, the shift towards renewable energy um, is a $64,000, 64, 64 billion dollar question, sorry. Uh. Um, let me rephrase that. It's a $64 billion question. Um, we make... Uh, a lot of these renewable energies, you know, possible. The blades of a um, wind turbine, for example, you can't use steel or even aluminum. They're made out of uh, high-tech, you know, plastic resins that can, you know, withstand the, you know, and uh, the um, pressures and the, the tensions and the such. They're reinforced with carbon fibers. Another product innovation of chemistry. A solar panel is essentially a miniature chemical plant, if you think about it. Um, It converts um, one form of energy into another uh, through, um, you know, what's essentially chemistry. Um, And uh, light vehicles. Um, That's where a lot of, you know, the question is that um, 
how will that affect you know, the demand for, say, plastics and automobiles? There's roughly 350 pounds of plastics in a typical light vehicle assembled in North America. Will that cause that to increase or will it cause it to decrease if you know cars become smaller? Uh, that's a question, but there's a lot of chemistry involved with uh, uh, electric vehicles. Um, you know, the battery chemistry, it's based on lithium chemistry. So it's, I would say it's most likely a uh, positive for the industry. I'm going to conclude with my last question for you on a topic that used to be thought of as academic, used to be thought of as long-term, but no longer is the case that it's either one of those. And the topic is demographics. Among the many other rapid changes that are swirling around the business climate are demographic changes. Now, a range of products and chemicals manufacturing have, have some ties to household formations. And household formations are being strained, certainly the advanced economies and to some extent in the developing world by falling fertility rates and falling birth rates. Let me ask you, are demographic shifts, demographic shifts, a key concern in your mind for the long-term profitability of many chemicals manufacturing industries? Well, I can't comment on the long-term profitability, but I can comment, I think, on the demand for chemistry. And uh, we've already talked about pharmaceuticals, about how that's you know driven by the an aging population and the such, and rising incomes worldwide. Um, but um, in terms of household formations, there are certain chemistries um, that are tied to building and construction. So, uh, for example, uh, you know PVC resins, which are used in say siding, you know plastic plumbing pipe things such as that, w you know windows. Uh, uh, that's tied to the level of construction to the extent that um, demographic pressures uh, change the the outlook for household formations and thus you know housing activity it can have an effect i did some work about 10 years ago on this uh, where i looked at the demographic profile of a number of the major plastic resins same thing for resins that are used in um, for example um, packaging and in um, um, consumer and institutional applications. As the, the, the uh, population ages, there's less that's maybe spent on goods, more spent on services. That has an impact. There's certain resins that are used in automobiles, and to the extent that demography plays a role in that, they will uh, you know, affect the uh, long-term demand for some of those resins. Dr. Kevin Swift, I can't thank you enough for giving us your time and giving us your expertise today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Cliff, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Uh, as you can see, listeners, Washington is very lucky to have such wonderful expertise in such crucial industry areas. We're going to tap into that. Next week, my guest is going to be my friend Tim Gill who is the chief economist of the American Iron and Steel Institute. Until then, this is Cliff Waldman reminding you, as always, that manufacturing matters, and we'll see you next time.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.